What's going on guys? Connor O'Hanlon here for another episode of the Con O Show. And today we're gonna have a two-story episode. And this is gonna be more the format going on uh, for the foreseeable future. It's gonna be either two, three, or however many stories I prefer each week, whatever catches my eye. So we're gonna dive right into it because this week is very, very unique in the Democratic race, particularly for president, but for the entire presidential race, because Joe Biden finally picked his vice president or vice presidential candidate. Um, upon or beyond that, we also have sports cancellations for college football and stuff, uh, stuff like that, that is going to affect us for a long time. So that is what we're going to be focusing on for today. And we're going to start with the vice presidential pick. Um, so if you don't know, you haven't heard somehow, um, you don't live on Earth, <laughs> you may have not heard, but Kamala Harris is Joe Biden's vice presidential pick. Now, this is not a shock. This is not something that is unbelievable. It's totally believable. It's totally within the realm of what was expected. Um, now, am I upset about it still? Taking my chairman's cap off as chairman of the Democratic Party, I would say yes. Um, not for the reasons of getting the first black uh, vice presidential candidate, the first uh, female vice presidential candidate, well, I guess technically Sarah Palin, the first Democratic one. Uh, first legitimate one. No, none of these none of these silly things are what might, makes me upset. It's more that, one, we don't get a progressive uh, as vice president, or president for that matter. We get someone that is very centrist, very much opposed to some of the messaging that progressives support. And, with that being said also, um, a lot of people are assuming things that Kamala will bring in new voters that Joe wouldn't. And we're going to push back on that in a second. But let's start off with the uh, progressive aspect of it. So when we talk about president, vice presidential candidates that Joe Biden could have picked that were progressive, they were few and far between, let's be honest here. The ones that were being considered, they were few and far between. He was very, and his campaign, they were very adamant about not picking someone that was progressive, like, frankly. Um, and that is what it is. We can only change that going forward. We can only change that by increasing our electoral presence as progressives going forward. Um, but let's look at the progressives that he had a choice from. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, Barbara Lee, I think those are the only two legitimate candidates that had ever been floated, um, and I don't think Barbara Lee ever got any sort of real consideration. Uh, Elizabeth Warren probably did, but I can't imagine that after a lot of the kerfuffles <laughs> and mess-ups that she had during her presidential campaign, um, and before that frankly, that her stock rose. If anything, in the last couple of years, her stock has been falling uh, as a presidential and vice presidential campaign uh, candidate. And that's not to say that she'd be in a bad pick. I 
personally, uh, when I was asked uh, by the campaign, who would I like? And I said Elizabeth Warren, um, because she's the best out of the ones that we had available. Now, there's other people that came to mind before we dive into <laughs> the other candidates that were up. Um, there was other people that came to mind that I am not sure if they're eligible. Um, but the first person that came to mind for me when talking about a um, a black female that Joe Biden, you know, he said, I, I want to have an African-American female as my vice presidential candidate. Um, I thought of Ayanna Presley. And I don't know, frankly, off the top of my head, if she's old enough. But that is a choice that actually could have have material impact for the election. Um, hear me out on this, because when we look at um, third parties and parties that are aligned in some races with the Democratic Party, the Working Families Party is aligned with the Democratic Party in a lot of elections um, because it's not a tech. I don't know if they really are a third party per se. Like they are basically Democrats and they elect people that have the Working Families Party label to them. Um, it's not exactly like the Green Party because the Green Party is a joke, frankly. Um, as much as I agree with a lot of their principles and their policies. Um, I'm losing focus on myself here. All right. Uh, <laughs> but the Working Families Party is a serious contender for actual elected office. They have people that have been nominated, they've been endorsed, and they've won actual office. Um, and that's not to say, like, knock Justice Democrats or something like that, because Justice Democrats have gotten plenty as well. Um, but the Working Families Party doesn't have the baggage that the justice Dems have or some other groups that are more progressive like our revolution um and the baggage solely comes from being challengers the justice democrats are challengers most of the time and our revolution candidates are challengers most of the time and they primary other democrats um which some people vehemently disagree with i personally think it strengthens our candidates and strengthens our party because if someone is sitting in there for a long time and they have the viewpoint of a 1970s Democrat and a new age Democrat wants to hop up and primary them, it at least challenges the perspective of the old Democrat, the incumbent, to change and adapt and see things in a different light, potentially. There's no guarantee of that. And on the flip side, you can get a Democrat that the primary winner is the more progressive candidate. And that that obviously uh, starts to change the game. And that's where we get the squad and whatnot. But th that's a long tangent of saying the Working Families Party is more of a we're going to work within the Democratic Party. We're going to work with existing Democrats. And we're going to do these things and build up to it. The Justice Dems is more of like we're going to challenge you. And I think they're both valid points. And there's definitely Working Families Party candidates that challenge uh, incumbents. Uh, I believe there was one in Seattle that did that. Um, I could be wrong, but I, that that's the top of my head. But Ayanna Presley was big in the Working Families Party, and she still is. And 
She's young. Again, I don't know if she's even old enough to be the vice presidential candidate. But this is this is the way I would be thinking of it if I was Joe Biden, right? Uh, which I'm not. But <laughs> uh, it's she's a young African American woman that has the progressive ideology that can bring in young voters. We tick the box of saying, okay. We have the diversity on the ticket because you know what? Frankly, that is important. Um, I, I saw that in the in the PA statewide elections here this year. That was an important factor. Uh, it, it is important to get white suburban women, uh, people of color, women of color, young people. Everyone, generally speaking, across the Democratic Party likes to see a diverse uh, cast of candidates. We don't want to just see the same old, same old anymore. Um, that's why someone, someone mentioned to me the other day, why don't they just pick, why didn't Biden just pick the safe bet and pick an old white man? And I said, because that is actually antithetical to the movement. That is antithetical to what he's trying to do. He's trying to build upon a diverse um, administration. And that's the way it is because that's what people want. That is what Democratic voters want. And now the focus and the hyper-focus on identity politics, that might be a little overblown, but that's okay. We can address those things. But representation is important. And that is why it was important that Joe, or it's valuable that Joe committed to doing that. Um, I don't like the way that he did it, uh, which, you know, it's nitpicky. But it, he used it as a way to undercut Bernie because Bernie wouldn't commit to just saying, I will pick a African-American woman. Um, he probably would have. Or he probably still would have picked someone that was qualified and they didn't necessarily have to be an African-American, but they were they would come from some sort of diverse background to you know, counteract Bernie's whiteness. And again, we're ignoring the fact that Bernie is Jewish and he would be the would have been the first Jewish president ever. Um, put that aside, he's viewed largely as just an old white dude. And that's not reinventing the wheel. So because Joe Biden committed himself to, I will pick the black female candidate, that got a lot of people um, excited. And Rightfully so, to some extent. So, Ayanna Presley was the one that came to mind, and there's definitely others that would fit that mold uh, that aren't the same, but they would fit that mold of, hey, you know, if AOC was a few years older, she'd be it. She'd be the the one that I would say she has to be the pick, because then, we're, well, we'll we'll get to that in a second, because. 2024 is a thing. Um, but then, then we go to other other candidates that were denied. We go through and we see Amy Klobuchar, which is a joke. Um, Amy somehow gained some traction in this presidential uh, election on the Democratic side. I don't know how, frankly. Uh, it's surprising to me. But being that she's, you know, younger, she uh, represents the Midwest. Uh, people value that. I think the geo uh, geopolitical play there doesn't add up as much as people think. 
it doesn't play as much as people think in a national race. Uh, I.e., let's look at Tim Kaine. Tim Kaine didn't, you know, Tim Kaine didn't get uh, Hillary Clinton any votes. Tim Kaine didn't sway anyone to be like, whoa, you know what? Actually, I need to vote for Hillary because Tim Kaine could be president and he's from Virginia. No. And Tim Kaine was extremely conservative. He is con- extremely conservative. Again, why these picks keep going to the right rather than the left is dumb on my, in my opinion, but uh, I don't think that it's that consequential um, in the negative term. It's not going to hurt them that much, but it doesn't help. Um, but Amy Klobuchar, man, she... <clears throat> there's not much that I can say that is positive about her campaign for president. Uh, she was better than Pete, and that's a very low bar because I think Pete was the worst, if not the second worst, to Bloomberg out of all of them, out of all the candidates that, for, as, as a progressive. Now, that's not to say that she's not a safer bet than some of the other ones, but just there's nothing that she brought that was that unique other than, you know, she's a woman. And Biden said that his pick's going to be a woman. So it didn't matter if it was her or Kamala or someone else, Susan Rice, um, because it was going to be a woman no matter what. So her unique ability of saying, like, you know, I'm a woman from... Uh, the Midwest, maybe that was a maybe that was a point in her favor. But she was a prosecutor, and she didn't prosecute a lot of things when it comes to police brutality in her state. And <clears throat> given the political climate we are in right now, that's a huge, huge detriment. And that's <clears throat> that's a liability that honestly I wouldn't be taking. I wouldn't be taking that. Uh, that that baggage as my vice presidential candidate <clears throat> to piggyback off of that uh susan rice was also uh floated very very often as one of the candidates that we, he would pick now i um admittedly don't know all that much about susan rice i just know that she was part of the uh obama administration now Frankly, from my gathering of information, she was more conservative than Kamala Harris on a lot of things, which is, it's not hard to be more conservative than a senator from California, in theory, but really, like, again, it's, it's just like, where are we breaking the mold? Where are we... Where are we stepping on new ground? Because you said it was going to be a woman, and preferably an African-American woman. So why not pick someone like Barbara Lee, who was leading the way in opposing the Iraq War or the Afghanistan War? Both of them. Someone that actually represents progressive values and hits those things that we need. Now, I, I, I personally would like to have seen someone like Ayanna Presley because it, she's young as well. That young like that that vitality uh, is important and it's important because joe biden is not in the best of shape frankly so just making sure that we have someone that's there that looks you know strong and powerful and can carry forward 
any sort of legacy that we want is important. Um, now, why? And there's other. There was other picks that could have been out there. I can't name them all off the top of my head or or go through every single one of them just in this episode. But <clears throat> now, why was Kamala the pick? And why is she problematic? In my opinion, not problematic enough to lose the election per se, but problematic as in it doesn't benefit us that much. Well, first off, she was the pick because she's a safe bet. Um, she's in a safe seat in California, so if she becomes vice president, generally speaking, we'll get another Democrat as senator. That's important. That's important. That's actually that's very important. So when we're talking about people that held office that uh, would have to give up that office to get to become vice president, that is a consideration to have. Um, it's not the only consideration, but it is one of the considerations. Um, she's an African African American woman. She's younger. She's not you know she's not thirty five, but she's young, uh, especially relative compared to Joe Biden. The other people that are in their 70s, I mean, Bernie, old as shit. Um, these, these people are, it's a little bit of the changing of the guard here. And what's scary to me, oh, and, and you know, she's been attorney general, she's a senator, uh, you know, she has experience. And now let's just, let's just remember that not all experience is good experience. Let's just take a side tangent real quick. And remember that Pete Buttigieg had a lot of experience. He had a lot of experience as a political advisor, a, uh, a um, I guess that's what he, a consultant, I should say, not an advisor necessarily. But that experience was terrible, was all antithetical to the progressive movement, to everything that he, uh, he said he believed in. And now I think it's important to keep knocking Pete Buttigieg down a little bit, frankly, because he's young enough to just keep running and running and running and running. And there's not a time that I can see someone that disingenuous being my preferred candidate. And, you know, if he is the nominee in four years, you'll have my vote, but... Someone that disingenuous is not going to win my be my preferred candidate in a primary. Uh, switching terminologies, all this other stuff, changing his beliefs all the time just to fit and just to try and get a little edge over people. That type of flip flopping is the disingenuousness that makes people not trust politicians. Um, but Pete is one of those examples of. Experience does not mean good experience. And now, compare that to Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton had a lot more good experience. Now, she had some bad experience as well. Um, some stuff as Secretary of State. Uh, sorry, yeah, yeah, Secretary of State wasn't, you know, great. But generally speaking, she was pretty good. I mean, in the Senate, some stupid votes, like um, the flag-burning votes. Um, but, you know, she was only there for a short time. And, you know, as first lady, she was pretty good on a lot of things. And then she became more right wing. Simon went on, frankly. And Kamala 
people people keep saying that she's radical on Twitter. These conservatives are saying, you know, oh, she's so radical. She's so left wing. It's this is the radical takeover of the Democratic Party. Uh, and then I saw like a stat that she votes with Bernie ninety three percent of the time. Yeah, I mean Bernie votes with the Democrats. Like they caucus together. Of course they vote almost like. We're not talking about voting the same way as a fascist, per se, or a, um, yeah, I don't even want to make another comparison. We're not talking about voting in the same way as Donald Trump uh, every single time. We're talking about Bernie Sanders. He votes with the Democrats. I mean, that's his caucus. So 93% means there's still a 7% time, 7% of the time where she's not voting with Bernie. And what that 7% is, because if you disagree with someone 7%, man, there's a lot in that 7% possibly. And we're talking about Medicare for All, even though she said she was a co-sponsor for it briefly. And then she backpedaled on that as well. Um, We're talking about Green New Deal, stuff like that, uh, student loan debt. We're talking about a lot of different things that their plans just do not align. And even if it's 93%, again, 7% can add up very quickly, especially if you're in the same party and you're disagreeing that much. That's not that close of a voting record, let's be honest here. Um, But the fact that people are saying she's radical, she's from California. Like, we're talking about a senator from California and... She is not radical in any way, any shape, any form. But, like, what, I, I can't even think of the most radical thing she voted for, other than maybe saying, like, she co-sponsored Bernie's bill at one point, and I'm sure she doesn't anymore. This, um, this posturing as saying, like, she's so radical, she's so this. This is why we, we have to stop being babies about who we run and who what ideas we espouse um and why the labels matter like less and less every single time like who the hell cares if they call us socialists anymore who cares if they call you communists or anything like that um i mean they're calling joe biden and kamala harris radicals and socialists then that goes to show you that it doesn't matter what you actually believe what you actually are fighting for they're going to call you that anyway And why not stand up for the working class? Why not stand up for the downtrodden? Why not stand up for historically marginalized communities like the LGBTQ community, the black community, the Hispanic community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like we're talking about, we're we're talking about the center of the road. Uh, Like these are, these are conservatives in other countries and maybe not like conservative party but they're on the they're in the middle or to the right and a lot of parties there in other countries. Kamala is not radical. Uh, anyone telling you that is dumb. They're not paying attention. She's not a progressive, so she's not radical, trust me. Cuz rad- progressives aren't even radical. But if you think that progressives are radical, she's not even that. So they can take a chill pill on that and reevaluate what they want to say about that um and then my major 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 concerns are that one she doesn't bring anything new to the table um the voters that she would bring in or she excites the k-hive 
are already stoked and in line and really excited, frankly, to vote for Biden. The people that are not so excited are the progressives, are the young people. And again, I say this as someone that I will vote for Joe Biden no matter what, uh, pretty much no matter what at this point. Um, I will be campaigning for him. I do campaign for him. And it's just, it's it, it's it's not the easiest thing to convince other people because it is just a, a lot of times, a lesser of two evils argument for that. But Joe Biden's not going to cut Social Security. Uh, he's not going to cut Medicare. And if he does... Go try to do that stuff. It's way easier to fight from within and push back against him than it is to push back against Donald Trump effectively. Because what's going to stop him? He doesn't give a shit if a Democrat or a progressive doesn't like him or doesn't want his policies to pass. They don't care. Republicans don't care. But at least Joe Biden needs some percentage of progressives to vote for. Um, but she just doesn't bring what... and And... The same logic would apply for Pete Buttigieg or any of these people that the perception is they're going to bring in young people. Every time I I talk about this with anybody, they think like, you know, oh, no, they want young people want to see, um, you know, you know, uh, a gay person be vice president or um, someone that's that's a that's black or that's true. These things are true. But that's, it's true for me. But my number one thing is ideology. And it doesn't have to be pure. It doesn't have to be, you know, we we are tele, telekinetically connected um, or telepathically connected. No. It's, are you close? Are we close? Do we agree on the principles of progressivism, of what being a Democrat means. Because the the parties, both parties are getting realigned right now. We don't see it. In history, we will look back and we'll see that 2016 to 2020, this era, well, as messed up as this era is, this will be a turning point, I think, in an alignment of the parties. And that's not to say that some Democrats are going to be Republicans and Republicans are going to be Democrats, although some of that will happen. Uh, i.e. the Lincoln Project, you'll see some of that. But it's more going to be, what does each party stand for? And one party is going to be the the fascist party, frankly. The one that is more authoritarian and more right-wing as time goes on, the Republican Party. And the Democratic Party is having a fight for the soul of the party while we are still pushing for Joe Biden. And the idea is to restore the Democratic Party, at least from my perspective, restore the Democratic Party to be a New Deal type Democratic Party that is inclusive of multi-generational, multi-racial, um, multi-class dynamics that build to help the working class, help the, the classes in, in making sure that these things are possible. The American dream is possible for as much as we can. Now, that isn't with choosing Kamala Harris. And again, it's just, it's not knocking her because she's definitely to the left of Biden. Um, 
but she's also a prosecutor or she was and she was an attorney general that prosecuted pe- like parents for their kids uh being truant and if this is the first time you're hearing that like i don't know what to tell you other than the fact that people don't like that people don't like that someone's going after parents for their kids truancy it sucks and the rec- her record is not great as attorney general as a senator, it's a little bit better. Um, my second major concern out of this is 2024, and that's a it's it's a concern that I'll have to deal with in 20 you know November fourth, 2024, or whatever, or 2021, whatever it is, or 2020. Stupid. Um, November 4th, you know, the day after election day or whatever day that we find out who is the next president. If it's Donald Trump, we're in for another hell of a ride. But hopefully we elect Joe Biden and, you know, Kamala Harris is VP. Joe Biden's already said he's only running for one term. So whether he makes it through his one term or he doesn't, whatever it is, Kamala Harris is going to be deemed slash crowned the next nominee the issue comes into it that it's not about just the vote count but it's about going in and saying this is our nominee before any votes are cast before any of the debates before anything and it gets it just gets it's just a crappy situation frankly um because then you have to work it's an uphill battle for anybody that's not deemed the nominee. And these nominees are not the best historically. Uh, there's no telling how well Bernie could do in 2020 versus Donald Trump. But um, these people that are deemed, you know, it. Hillary Clinton's not that exciting. She never was. It was important that we had a, a presidential nominee as, as a woman. And that was exciting. But other than that, her policies were trash. Um, Not complete trash, but they were pretty bad. Uh, And Joe Biden's policies are, you know, I think Joe Biden's actually had put out some decent stuff now, like his donut hole on Social Security tax, um, some some student loan cancellation, some language of the Green New Deal. It needs to go a lot further, but it's better. And that's important. Um, but Kamala would be next in line and we shouldn't have that. We shouldn't have the, the crowning, the you're next, because frankly, if we did that, AOC would be next. Uh, and I think, I think by a slim, slim time period, she would be old enough, I think, to be 35 by inauguration day, which I think is all you have to do. If you, if I'm wrong with that, leave a comment down below and let me know. But I'm pretty sure that that's what would happen. And if it was me, I'd be crowning her next because she's going to be the one that is fighting the entire way. Now, um, when it comes to sucking it up, basically. That's what we have to do. Uh, that's just what we have to do. It's not. 
it's not my choice. She's not my choice. She's better than Joe Biden, in my opinion. I would have voted for her over him uh, in the primary. But she's not the worst. And she's not the best. She's nothing crazy exciting. It would be cool to have the first female president, and it's at least a Democrat, uh, not, you know, Nikki Haley or some nut right winger. That's good. Like, that stuff's good. But we have to go beyond just the. And this is, you know, we're talking greater beyond 2020. We're, we're talking after we get Joe Biden elected. Yes, good job. We have to go beyond just accepting the status quo and being crowned and this and that. And these these people that have just started paying attention need to stay engaged. And if you're listening to this, you're probably engaged already. But we need to stay engaged and stay fighting until we get the policies that we actually need and want. So with that being said, we're going to take a quick break and... When we come back, uh, or if you are watching on YouTube, there's an, there I will have a short intermission here, and or you can check out the second clip of the Con O show. Uh, I'm going to take a quick break, really fast. If you guys are watching on YouTube, please hit the subscribe button, hit the like button. If you are listening to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, please follow the show, subscribe, however the button asks, because that would be awesome to grow our reach. And if you would like, you can follow me on social media at Con O'Hanlon on Twitter and the Con O Show on Facebook. Um, thank you guys so much, and I'll see you in part two. Welcome back to part two of the Con O Show. This segment is going to be on sports. Uh, <laughs> it's definitely not the normal topic of the Con O Show, obviously. But I feel it's necessary to talk about, because it's in news this week, about all these colleges. And this is going to be a little bit about colleges, it's going to be a little about school, education, teachers etc. But it starts with football. Now, if you're looking at me, you might be able to tell that I was a football player in high school. I'm a power lifter. And if you can't see me, well, and you've never seen me before, I am a power lifter, rather big guy. Um, and I used to play football in high school and I was a middle linebacker and it used to mean a lot to me. And more so as a player than anything else. Obviously, fans get really excited. They get really into the games. And, you know, when I was at Penn State, I used to go to the games. But I kind of grew beyond that, honestly. Uh, it just didn't do it for me anymore. And that's okay. Uh, some people are way into it. You know, I'm around Phillies and people in Philly are, you know, you know they're fanatics. <laughs> um but 
We saw over the last couple of weeks another uptick in COVID deaths and COVID-related cases that are, you know, the cases are astronomical how large they've increased. And the deaths are also corresponding to an increase in the death rate. Now, it's not as bad as it could be. Uh, and I think partially there's more tests, which is good, which shows more positive cases. Um, but at the same time, we cannot use these more positive cases with a relatively low death rate to justify putting on football games or putting on sporting events, uh, especially ones with crowds. And, you know, we, we, we see it with professional sports and it's crazy to me that some of these professional sports are even, you know, operating. The MLB, the NBA. Uh, it's funny that the NBA is putting the players in like a bubble, basically. And it's working. It seems to be working rather well. The MLB, not so much. And which is funny because I think that the base baseball is generally a less contact-oriented sport. You would think that it's easier to not contract uh, coronavirus when you're very far apart and you're outside. But the NBA, they're right on top of each other, breathing each other's faces, sweating on each other, whatever. It, I'm, I'm happy that they're handling it decently well. Now, when it comes to football, as someone that's played football, there is no, absolutely no way to social distance and play football. There's no way that you're not going to have people, uh, you know, accidentally or intentionally spitting, sweating, bleeding on each other. That's just how it, that's just how it is. Um, that's just how the game is played. And when we, when we compare it to other sports, it's almost just laughable. Like, it's so obvious that you can't play football in this type of situation. I've been saying it for a long time to people, and they didn't believe me that when I said, you know, the NFL is not going to come back. The, you know, eventually they will, but the NFL is not going to come back. Uh, college football is not going to come back. I'm shocked at the other professional sports leagues somewhat coming back. So you know what? Maybe I'll eat my words and the NFL will come back, but it will not be in the full capacity that we're used to. And you know, to me, it doesn't bother me. I don't watch professional. I don't watch professional sports anymore. I don't watch college sports anymore. It doesn't mean much to me. So I can just say, you know, on my pedestal, hey, you, you, you stupid losers, you know, you don't need to watch football. But I get that it means a lot to some people. But it's telling in a, generally speaking, positive way that the NCAA, uh, it's not really the NCAA, it's really the individual conferences, and it started with Division Three. I mean, my brother plays football, and smaller Division Three schools made the call earlier. No season. No football season. And f for many reasons, football is the moneymaker 
for sports, uh, when it comes to college sports at least, generally. And there's some schools that have, you know, good basketball teams, and those are the ones that are bringing the money. But for the most part, football teams are what bring in revenue. So when we look at Division three schools, it's – you know, it's not surprising these schools are generally generally more focused on academics, and a lot of those schools are going online fully for the academics. They're in small towns. They're this, that, and the other that make it a little easier to justify canceling the season or pushing it back to the spring. Now, without that revenue, this applies to big colleges too. Without that revenue from football, the other sports that are less contact-oriented are going to take a hit because that's how they partially fund other sports. The athletic department uh, shares a lot of that revenue. Now, that's not for every school, but for a lot of them, that's how they get funding. And your funding is equal for a lot of, for a lot of sports. And so women's volleyball is going to take a hit because college football is canceled. Golf is going to take a hit because college football is canceled goes across the board now the it's like unlike the pick for kamala as vice president the cancellation of division one conferences of college football is frankly shocking to me it shouldn't be because that should be the rational choice it is the rational choice but the amount of money that schools, college towns, uh, media providers are going to lose because of this is astronomical. Frankly, it's astronomical. And I feel bad for the local businesses, say like in State College. Again, they, they, Big Ten, the Big Ten canceled football. And Big Ten is... You know, Penn State, Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State, Wisconsin. These are huge, huge schools. And without them, you know, Columbus, Ohio is going to take a massive hit. The local economy is going to take a hit. State College, Pennsylvania, is going to take a hit. And that's in real estate. That's in uh, business costs. That's in lost revenue for restaurants, for merchandising, across the board. And, and these things are, you know, minuscule in the grand scheme of an, eco- an economy. But for that that town, it's everything. So this is shocking to me because of that. And the, f- the fans, I, I don't want to, you know, use any, any bad words, <laughs> but the fans are going crazy on you know social media and I I I I feel that pain. I, I understand and I empathize with that pain. But how many kids or how many coaches or how many families have to get sick and lose somebody before it is the right call to cancel the season? And again it's it's the biggest domino is football, and I understand that. But football is probably the worst, if not like second to like wrestling, when it comes to contact, physical contact, 
for sports and the transmission of COVID. And there's no way that college kids are going to isolate themselves. There's no way that college kids are going to quarantine themselves. They have school. They have classes. They have parties they're going to go to, frankly. Uh, I don't condone that, but that is what will happen. If they're at school, which for some stupid reason, which we'll get into a little bit of that in a second, for some stupid reason, they're letting college kids go back or making them go back. And for that reason alone, college sports is not just going to float by on on uh unharmed because it's just not going to happen uh there is too much moving too many moving parts for that kind of thing to work without massive massive problems and i feel bad for kids that you know it's their senior year my brother's a senior and they're gonna. They might lose their season completely. They might play it in the, the spring. But that's you know sometimes that's the way it goes. I mean, there's already been like half a year's worth of sports canceled, and those kids lost their opportunity uh, to play, and they lost their academic school year. But again, I I pose the question, how many people have to get sick? How many people have to die before it's the common sense response? It sucks. It doesn't bother me that much to cancel football, but I know if I was that local business owner in State College or Columbus, Ohio or wherever... It would mean a lot. It would really mean a lot. So I empathize. And I just I just don't get it though. The unabashed denial that the virus is going to spread while we're playing these sports or having kids go back to school. And this, I'm going to pivot here a little bit. The fact that we have school districts opening up, not just colleges, but colleges are particularly bad because colleges are, kids are old enough to transmit the disease, get very sick, get their peers sick, go to parties, go to bars, go to restaurants, go to whatever, get other people sick. That's one way. But we're going to have school districts, which now in the last two weeks, 97,000 plus kids get coronavirus. And we're talking kids now. So this is like, you know, elementary school and up to high school. These kids are getting sick and now they're going to bring it back to their, their families. Those people are going to get sick and they're going to die for what? So we don't have online school. It's, it's too It's too crazy. We can't. Oh, man, these kids, you know, they can't. They can't operate online. Yes, they can. And teachers can too. But let's take the student side first. Students, they struggle to do online schooling because they have access to their phones. They have access to social media at all times when they're home. That is definitely a problem. And I I feel that. 
But if we want to create a world and an economy that works for everyone and works for people that will work, work remotely and for the for the interim, a lot of people are going to be doing that. Then we have to figure out how to operate as students, operate as workers, operate as anything without taking every five minutes to look at your phone. I mean, look at, I'm a millennial and I'm recording this hour long, 45 minute long podcast without looking at my phone. That's just something that I have to do in this attention span. And I'm not looking at anything. I have two monitors with nothing but what I'm recording on the screen. And it's rare for uh, for younger people to have that sense of focus and that sense of disconnect dis- disconnection from their phones. It's a sad commentary on our society, but that's the way it is. So these kids are going to have to figure it out. Because if they don't, and they're going to push it on the teachers, they're going to push it on whatever, that's unacceptable. Because they can do it. They do it every single day when they're in person. There's not that much different. There's, there is the physical presence of somebody is definitely something that is lacking. And I get that part of it. And the socialization for kids and, you know, the logic of why kids should be in a normal situation in person, I agree with. But we're not talking about normal life. We are talking about a global pandemic. So college kids are one thing. Students are another thing that are in, you know, primary school, uh, high school. But we don't even talk. I mean, maybe you listening to this do. But most people don't even bring up the fact that staffing these schools is going to be impossible or very near impossible because one, the budgets are cut because the tax deferrals or whatever the local governments decide to do, you know, that's up to them. Um, they're going to... They're going to have lost revenue because of people, you know, and school districts are generally funded by real estate taxes, but other other parts are, you know, funded here and there from, you know, sales tax or whatever. But local economies are hurting. So how are they going to fund teacher salaries? How are they going to fund janitorial salaries? How are they going to afford, you know, any sort of improvements to schools during this time when people are not making enough money and people are moving and whatever? And... The fact that we don't talk about teachers and we don't talk about staff, we don't talk about the custodians, we don't talk about you know principals or anything like that is telling that we value babysitters basically over educators, over you know our educational system. And I'm not demeaning teachers when I say that, but we, we're treating not we, including myself, but we as a society are only treating teachers for their in-person watching of children rather than the educators that they are. And they have the potential and the ability to teach kids online. 
it's just a matter of planning and giving teachers a heads up. Because guess what? The kid that is 16 is not going to be the one that is concerned about dying, but that teacher that is 55 uh, is the one that's going to be concerned about them dying. And the fact that they have to risk their lives for a $40,000, $50,000 a year salary, um, they have to do double the work now because they have to provide stuff for kids that do want to go online and they want, have to do in-person and they have to do one for hybrid. So let's do that three times. We're going three times over on the work that teachers have to do for no increase in pay, no increase in benefits, more risk, more just it's more risk to get sick and more risk to die. And we don't talk about that. We, you don't see that on the news. You just see, oh, these kids got sick. These, some people got sick. Uh, we're worried about the families. No, I'm worried about the teachers too. I'm worried about the people that are in the schools that have to provide the services that we deem necessary or we deem valuable. But a lot of people don't. And it pisses me off because we value playing football more than we do the lives of teachers. And we value we value having in-person class over the lives of students. And we value uh, having basically daycare for young kids over the lives of those teachers that have to watch those kids. And I get that physically having kids go to school enables our economy to operate. And that is a part of why people need to send their kids back to school. Again, it's the the babysitter part of being a teacher. And I say that with utter respect because these there's kid plenty of kids that are very, very hard to deal with. But what happens when we send kids back and we want to the kids acting up and the teacher needs to punish them for doing something and the kid just takes off their mask and coughs in this the teacher's face? Or what if happens if a kid refuses to wear a mask? How do you enforce that? How is it possible to enforce that? It's not. Because anyone that has to enforce it needs to go up to the kid wearing, not wearing a mask and assume that he's not sick. He, she, he or she is not sick, which is not a plausible solution. So generally speaking, this is a little just bit of a, of a rant on education and valuing certain things over lives here. But it comes back to the decision that is telling and you should know that it's telling that it's not safe for kids to go back to school because if there's not if it's not safe to if it's more reasonable to not have a college football season than it is to have one during this time and they're losing all those millions if not billions of dollars across generally like you know merchandise etc like i said earlier if that is more worth it to them to save those people's lives, then we should be reevaluating everything with school, with work, because they don't know anything that we don't know. They're just valuing things differently. And I wish that we did that more often. We did value lives and reducing suffering for the most amount of people over just the monetization of everything. But Alas, we don't. So, in closing, if you're listening to this, you have a kid, you have 
um, you know, family members that are going to go back to school, they're going to go play sports, whatever. Just know that you have to be as smart and reasonable as you possibly can when it comes to this. If you have kids that can take online school, I would suggest you do that. Um, Because there's no reason to send them in because guess what? In a couple weeks, they're going to be sent back out. If you're a teacher, I am sorry. (laughs) I am so sorry for your situation. And if you need any help, please let me know. Because I empathize with that situation a lot. And I understand how challenging these times can be for teachers, especially uh, with the moving parts and not the uncertainty of what you're supposed to do, what you're going to do, what you can do. It's crazy. Um, but yeah, with that being said, thank you guys for listening to this episode of The Kano Show. If you're listening on YouTube, thank you for listening to this clip. And I will see you guys next week. And if you have any topics, you have guests you want to see, drop them down below in the comment section or comment on the Facebook posts that I'm posting. You can tweet at me. You can email me. Uh, follow the show on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash the Kano show. Subscribe on YouTube. And yeah, follow me on Twitter at Con O'Hanlon. I appreciate you guys and I can't wait to talk to you again next week. Peace.